What's up? It's Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. Thanks for listening to the Under the Hood podcast presented by Coors Light. Stay inside and buy your Coors Light online. Find out how at get.coorslight.com. Coors Light, take time to chill. It's Under the Hood. Follow us on the ground at IGJHood and at ESPN underscore Chicago. This is Chicago's home for sports. ESPN 1000. Thanks for being with us here on this Wednesday night, Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood, weeknights at 7 here on ESPN 1000. And the ESPN Chicago app will hear from Fred Mitchell, longtime scribe with the Chicago Tribune. If you remember, Fred's column from February of 1998 was part of that Last Dance documentary where Jerry Krause said, we want Michael Jordan to come back even though Jerry Krause wanted Phil Jackson out and is very clear that Michael was not going to play for the Bulls if Phil Jackson wasn't around. So we'll get into all that with Fred Mitchell, who was there right in the epicenter of all of that with the Bulls coming up at 930 right here on ESPN 1000. Open phone lines for you, 312-332-ESPN, 332-3776 is our phone number. Anything that you've heard the previous two hours talking about the NFC North, talking about the Bears, uh, we'd love to get your reaction to uh, what you've heard here on the program. Jump in. We've got open phone lines for you, as always, here on the program. So, reading Darnell Mayberry from TheAthletic.com. Interesting column today, uh, as he says, Will Jim Boylan stick around, or could one of two hot candidates replace him? Well, as I've talked about a lot, it is very important for the Bulls to put a new face on the organization. Something different. And I've always had it back in my mind, and maybe it's just me, but I've always wondered, okay, we're getting millennials like Tyler that's on the show tonight that's watching this for the first time, the way this drama played out. I'm in my mid-20s watching this when the Bulls were going trying to get their sixth championship in eight years and watching everyday drama from Jerry Krause or everyday drama from Jerry Reinsdorf uh, about this Bulls team and whether or not the Bulls could win another championship. All of this was interesting um, because you didn't know whether or not the Bulls could finally do it and win a, yet another championship. They won five. You say, will, this, will it end now because of the drama, because of Dennis Rodman going out to Vegas and... All this stuff. It, I mean, great, compelling stories if you're seeing it for the first time. I lived it. <laughs> Davis lived it. We, we read about this every day. We kept wondering, like, how does this end, right? And so I always thought, looking at this, I was always wondering, like, when there are younger players in the league that are in their 20s and they're seeing this documentary on a regular basis now every Sunday, I wonder what they think of the Bulls organization now as they see this documentary back then of things we saw in the late nineties, because it is important for the bulls to be on the right track, to find quality free agents, not C-list free agents, not a Thomas Sadaransky and just, you know, Thaddeus young. It's not, it's not about that. What it's about is it's about trying to find quality free agents to go along with your draft picks and for you to be able to get better incrementally every single year until you're a real contender. Now, every team can't get the big fish, the Giannis Antetokounmpo big fish. Everyone can't get you know, a Zion Williamson every single year. But what you're looking for is to be able to have a sound organization in which if you're in the middle, you can find a way up by being able to have, um, to have free agents that want to come to your city. 
Now, I understand why free agents flock to Florida, flock to Texas, flock to California, uh, and different places around the NBA landscape, because this generation of NBA players, the millennial players that's in the uh, NBA right now, uh, they're about legacy. They already know they have generational wealth. I know in the 90s, it was about being on MTV Cribs and uh, the lifestyles of rich and famous, Robin Leach, and showing how many different cribs I have, how many different how many different women I have, how many different cars I have. It was about bling. It was just about money. The music was about that. It was just a different era in the 90s where it's like, yeah, I got money. If I win championships, fine. If I don't, I still got money. Money is the only thing that really mattered. The thing that just made the world go around. All the songs about it, right? But I think this generation understands legacy and understands that winning a championship has to be along with the money that they make. Because in this AU culture that we are in right now from a basketball standpoint, you see talented players go from place to place on AU circuit. Oh, I, I can't play for this team. We can't win. I need to be with these other talented players so I can get noticed more so we can actually win our tournaments. That's kind of like how it is with the AU circuit. Uh, and so the AU circuit and that environment, I believe, permeates the NBA in some ways in which there are players that want to be able to be with winning teams. And so the Bulls have to be one of those winning teams. But win, right? Well, reading the piece today from um, theathletic.com, it makes sense from Darnell Mayberry. It makes sense when you say it. It makes sense when I say it. That the Bulls have to be able not only have Connor Shovis in place as executive vice president of basketball operations or having Mark Eversley come aboard as the general manager, but they also have to be able to look at the head coach. So I think it's very interesting that Boylan has been very silent throughout all this. I haven't seen Boylan. Boylan put, popped his head up a little bit just to say, we welcome Connor Shovis to the organization. Then he just has been laid back. He's just... He hasn't been around. He's been laying low. And that's when the NBA suspended its season on March 11th. All of a sudden, you don't don't hear much from Jim Boylan anymore. Well, I think that if you are Connor Shelvis and if you are Eversley, you go to Michael Reinsdorf and you go to whoever else they got to go to and say, if we want to start this thing fresh, we need to have the head coach that we need to have in place. I believe in Kenny Atkinson as the new head coach for the Bulls. Um, he left Brooklyn because he didn't want to deal with the headache of KD and Kyrie. It doesn't make him a loser. It doesn't make him uh, a guy that's running away from the challenge. He just knew that even dealing with Kyrie, even on the shelf, and KD on the shelf, he's like, nah, I don't want to deal with this. But Kenny Atkinson is great with young talent. He is great, not good, great with young talent, cultivating young talent. He'd be a great coach for the Chicago Bulls. That was something I said once uh, Atkinson was fired by Brooklyn. I'm sorry, when he left Brooklyn, not fired. When he left Brooklyn, I said he should be the guy in place. As we talk about this on ESPN 1000, the brand new ESPN Chicago app. So Mayberry writes, he says, while Boylan is hoping to stay, the easiest and most efficient way for Karnaschovas to begin building the Bulls in his image is to bring in his own coach. And multiple rival executives who spoke to the Athletic anticipate that this is what the Bulls will eventually do, whether it's in the upcoming days or whenever the NBA announces plans to return from the canceled games. Either way, as Darnell writes, change will be coming. And so he talks about this group here. Listen closely. He says, when they do, it will be the latest go-around 
in what's been a revolving door of Bulls coaches the past three seasons. So the Bulls added Chris Fleming and Roy Rogers this season after losing longtime assistant and former player Pete Myers. Last year, upon uh, Boylan taking the reins from the fired Fred Hoiberg, the Bulls lost assistant Randy Brown and added Dean Cooper. The year prior, the Bulls watched former assistant Charlie Henry accept the head coaching job of the franchise's G League team, and longtime assistant Mike Wilhelm moved to a scouting job with the team. So there's been a lot of movement. But there's some suggestions here in this column, and there's two player, two particular guys in positions here that should be a head coach, if not with the Bulls someplace. Two current assistant coaches are standing out in increasingly possible Boylan replacements whenever the job may open. One of them is, is Odoka, Emi Odoka from Philadelphia, and Adrian Griffin, the Hawk, from Toronto. You remember him playing for the Bulls? He's been an assistant for a while here. So Griffin played for the Bulls for three seasons on two separate occasions. He was under Skiles, then under Thibodeau. Griffin served as an assistant uh, for all five of Thibodeau's seasons. Uh, together, they ushered the most success the Bulls have had since Jordan in that era, right? Remember, Thibodeau had a 64% winning percentage. That's only second to Phil Jackson among all-time Bulls coaches. So the Hawk would be a good coach for anybody, including um, including this Bulls team. It is important for the Bulls to get this right eventually. But I don't want Eversley and Karnaschovas to say, well, you know, if we blow this whole thing up, then it's not going to make Pax look good. The hell with him and Gar Foreman. Like that, this, that whole thing from the jump, and I've talked about this so often, you know that wasn't the right choice. You know, you know that that looks bad. This is, this is not Doug Collins and Phil Jackson when you fire Fred Hoiberg and bring in Jim Boylan. You know it's far from that, right? What, what's the zen-like ability from Jim Boylan that tells you that this is the next Phil Jackson, right? This is why... I've said this several times here throughout the time of this documentary, how similar the past is to the present and vice versa, right? Like Jerry Krause knew he wanted Tim Floyd a year and a half before he put Floyd in position as head coach. You know, Gar Foreman wanted to make sure that Fred Hoiberg was going to be the coach a year or two before Tom Thibodeau was let go by the Bulls. And the same thing here, like Jim Boylan is in it as a head coach. And so at this point in time, that era and that regime is over. So you've got to be able to do something different. So Eversley comes in with a lot of, of a big pedigree from Nike, his pedigree from Nike for 10 years there working with the Nike organization. And then working with the Toronto Raptors uh, toward the bottom of that organization, working his way up working with the Philadelphia Sixers organization. So that was good for Eversley with the Sixers. So I talked to Paul Jones, the veteran voice for the Toronto Raptors just the other day. I talked to him about a number of things. One of them I asked is, how important was Eversley's time with Nike to the Bulls? I think you said it in the key word there, Jonathan, is is relationships. Um, you know, you get to know these guys and you, and you get to know their uh, professional needs and professional wants, but you also get to know them a little bit on a personal level. You know, there's travel, there's, um, you know, there's meeting, especially around all the marketing and when guys be big names and they have a shoe out or, you know, a brand in that sense uh, associated with Nike. So I, I think it's all about relationships and Mark, you know, his 10 years with Nike was, was probably pretty, 
pretty good in terms of uh, setting a foundation for that. And uh, I mean, that's what it is now. I mean, he's a GM now. He's going to have those critical relationships with uh, other people in the front office, with head coaches, assistant coaches, um, you know, people on the business side of, of the Bulls organization and, and you know, ultimately with the players and in terms of, uh, you know, getting contracts done and all of that. I mean, uh, you know, you're in Chicago. Everybody's watching the last dance right now. And, you know, as, as great as the team was, the at times toxic relationship between, you know, uh, the late, you know, Jerry Krause and some of the players, uh, I think eventually broke that team up and, and egos got in the way. So I, I really think it's important to have those relationships. And, and uh, Mark is off to a good start with all this experience right now between Nike, the Raptors, the Wizards and the Sixers. So thoughts there from uh, Paul Jones. Also, uh, I asked him his thoughts uh, about the docuseries that we've been watching here with The Last Dance. You know, when younger players, current agents look at the docuseries, does the documentary hurt or help the Bulls for the future? I don't think it's going to hurt. I mean, it's a, I think it's a, it's a reflective and retrospective look back at that time uh, with a great team that people wanted to know about. Because, let's face it, everybody was trying to get close to them. And I was fortunate enough to, um, you know, call some games in the early years of the Raptors. The Raptors were two or three years old when all of this was going on. And, you know, I got to call some of those games and with my brother Mark doing his first finals at 92. Uh, that was championship number two in the first of the, the trilogies for the three peats. Mm-hmm. I happen to be around, and I, I, I don't, I don't think it's going to hurt the team. I, I, you know, um, that era's gone, and we're in, we're in a, a, a new time right now. They just turned over the management team, and a lot of people will look at them, but you know, the current management team, all they have to do is say, "Look, that wasn't us," you know. And it was like when Brian Colangelo came to Toronto. Look, I know there was the fans have had hardships, and and you know, there hasn't been any playoff games for a while but we're starting from this point we're not going to look back we're going to look forward from this point and i think that's what the bulls have to to focus on um you know i don't i don't don't think it really has too much to do in terms of hurting the current organization heck they even had one of their guys as a player i mean john paxton was in there for a long time trying to trying to get things going so um you know, when I look back, I mean, the documentary is great, but I, I don't think it'll have that much, at least to me, not that much impact on the current situation. All right. Some thoughts there from Paul Jones, the voice of the uh, Toronto Raptors on the radio side coming up next. So uh, is baseball coming back and how will it look if baseball returns? We discuss it next right here on Under the Hood. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Follow on Twitter at TweetJHood. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood here on ESPN 1000, reading Ken Rosenthal from TheAthletic.com, talking about Major League Baseball. Will, will baseball return? This this struck me. I'm going to hear from Tim Kirchner in just a moment as well. The longer the sport waits, baseball, as long, the longer the sport waits, the greater the number of options that may arise, provided COVID-19 numbers trend positively in states under consideration. The most realistic time range for opening day, somewhere between mid-June and the 4th of July, in the view of most officials, would allow for 80 to 100 game regular season with the schedule running through October. An expanded postseason at neutral sites might follow with the World Series ending in late November or early December. 
Such a plan would hold particular appeal for the league's national broadcast partners if college football, if that season is abbreviated or canceled, creating more programming slots. The NFL plans to play this fall as well. So it, it is interesting when you think about baseball being played in you know around Thanksgiving or December because of COVID nineteen. I, I just um, it's not that. I would not watch baseball without fans. Of course I'd watch baseball without fans. It's baseball. It's, you're watching the you if you're watching on television you're watching based on the action on the field. The fans to me are secondary in that. The atmosphere is secondary to that. Um uh, I remember as it was written about in the Tribune 5 years ago the when Freddie Gray was murdered uh in Baltimore and there was so many riots around the, the ballpark that they uh, told fans not to go to the game. It was just the media. There was no fans there, and it was just the ball players. And it was it was different for sure. Um, but it really the focus is on how you know how the game is played, and it might affect some of the players, but it won't affect me as a fan. Uh, ultimately, I will say what I've been saying for a long time here about COVID nineteen as we're alone together in this, uh, and that is that until we are in a position where we can feel comfortable sitting next to our neighbor and there is no COVID-19 or there is no uh, risk of getting an entire ballpark of uh, infected. I'm not going to the games. I'm just not going to do it. And I don't think that you should either. It's one thing for us to have cabin fever and want to be out and want to be able to go back to our normal lives. But uh, if there's something in the way of that, uh, I'd rather for you to, as a listener to be alive than dead. I think I couldn't make it any more simple than that. I'd rather for you to be able to be with your family, with your friends, kicking it when you can versus just trying to force things just because, well, because this is what we're used to. And this is, well, what you're used to is not the norm today. The norm is people dying because of COVID-19. So baseball can be played. I just don't know how that is possible. um, Even amongst players, as far as you can test all the time, but who knows who's carrying COVID-19. There are people that are carrying it, don't even know they're carrying it, as we've heard those stories as well. Some thoughts now from Tim Kirchgen. Tim Kirchgen was on Cap and Company. The Major League Baseball sage was on talking about a possible Major League Baseball restart. Look, I'll be excited about any plan that gets anybody playing in any city at any point because – All these plans are not good, but they're the best of the bad plans. So let's hear more of them. This one makes sense. Do it geographically. It makes sense. And it adds a different flavor that the Cubs and White Sox would be in the same division. So I think it's worth a look. I think everything is worth a look. The problem is nothing is worth a look either because every plan that comes up is filled with warnings, and so many roadblocks are in the way of all of this that it's just really hard to take any of this real seriously right now until we start to make some significant progress, and I still don't think we're there yet. So do you? if you're a betting man, by July 4th, are we playing baseball? I'm going to say yes. You notice my hesitancy. But twice this week I have spoken to people. And, again, these are guys who are telling me, look, I don't know the answer. I'm speculating. I'm guessing like everyone else. But both said we would be playing in July. 
One told me we'd be playing in the middle of June, and the same guy told me we'll be playing in major league stadiums with fans by the end of the regular season. I don't believe that for a minute. But to have anyone, a bright guy, who is informed and is that optimistic that something good's going to happen, that made me feel a lot better. And Joe Madden told me a couple days ago he thinks we'll be playing in July. But he has no basis for this other than just reading the tea leaves, as he puts it. And there could be so much benefit to playing again. And yet I repeat, so many roadblocks in the way. So some thoughts there from Tim Kirshen from Cap and Company earlier today. As a, as a betting man, he says that he expects baseball. It may not be with fans, but he expects baseball. All right, we'll talk more about the last dance. You know, a column that was featured in one of the episodes of the last dance was a column written by Fred Mitchell, former Tribune scribe, about how Jerry Reins, Jerry Reinsdorf and Jerry Krause wanted Michael Jordan to return, even though Phil Jackson was on the way out. We'll discuss that and more coming up next right here on UTH. This is Chicago's home for sports. Stream ESPN 1000 easily on the all-new ESPN Chicago app. You're listening to Under the Hood on ESPN 1000. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood right here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app. The Last Dance has just been a tremendous documentary we're watching every Sunday, learning more and more about the Chicago Bulls and the championship run. We turn to someone that was right in the epicenter, in the middle of all this, former Chicago Tribune columnist and author of 12 successful books. It is friend of the program, Fred Mitchell, with us here on ESPN 1000. Fred, Jonathan Hood, thanks so much for your time. Jonathan, uh, always good to talk to you and hope you're Stand safe and, and well. Absolutely. And the same to you and your family. I, I want to get your thoughts about this last dance documentary. What what stands out to you so far about what we've seen so far? I, I think they, they have done a terrific job of uh, using the benefit of, of perspective of, you know, the last uh, 25 years or whatever, uh, as well as accurately documenting what went on at the time and put sort of putting the pieces together. Uh, you know, when you're going through that, uh, either, you know, directly involved as a, uh, one of the players or coaches or whether you're a reporter, uh, documenting it at the time, uh, it, it, it all sort of becomes a, a blur, uh, to, to some extent, uh, at the time that you're going through it. But given the benefit of time, and you, and you look back and you put all the pieces together, and it, uh, it it's really uh, fascinating and uh, interesting to learn uh, a lot of the interaction that uh, the players and coaches had uh, among themselves, uh, a lot of their uh, feelings and perspectives that perhaps we weren't totally privy to, you know, at the time. Uh, so yeah, I, I find it entertaining, informative. Uh, dramatic and you know even though uh we all know how it wound up and you know what the what the ending is uh it's still very intriguing to watch in my perspective you're watching that documentary all of a sudden your column comes up there february 4th 1998 the tribune column that you wrote regarding jerry Krause wanting michael jordan to to return how would you um how would you characterize your personal relationship with Krauss in that time, because 
Jerry, obviously very polarizing in his time, and now he's certainly polarizing. But how would you characterize uh, your working relationship with Jerry? Yeah, I had a, a very uh, pleasant relationship, a professional relationship uh, with Jerry. And, you know, as, as you know, he was very secretive uh, with the media and didn't want to reveal, uh, you know, whether it was uh, 6 o'clock at night or not, he would confirm it. <laughs> Uh, he was that type, and, and that was his background as a, a super smooth uh, scout uh, in baseball and basketball. And uh, uh, But he respected me and, and treated me very well. And, uh, you know, it, as much as he could, he, you know, confided in me uh, about his feelings. And, uh, so, you know, I, I respected that, and he, he respected me. So we had a we had a good working relationship and saw each other many places over the years, whether it was, uh, you know, in basketball or, or baseball. So he was, a he wanted to do the right thing. Uh, he had, I would dare to say it's an understatement that he had, uh, issues in terms of, uh, social interactions with, with people. Uh, a lot of people, uh, made fun of him and, and see that in the documentary, how, some of the Bulls players uh, treated him. Yeah, I think he, more than anything else, wanted to be respected. He wanted to be considered one of the guys, uh, and that that didn't always happen, as we can see. Uh, Krauss always wanted to be able to have credit, and I gave him credit as someone that was watching the Bulls. Fred, how could you not? He's the general manager of the team. You obviously look at the players and the and the and Phil Jackson and all that. Um, does he get the credit that he deserves, Krause? Oh, you know, probably not. And, you know, it's, it's, it, it's almost, uh, as if that, that's the type of position where if everything's going okay and, and it's well, and you're kind of behind the scenes anyway. Uh, but the way the thing exploded with the Bulls during the, during the nineties and, and the six championships and the, international attention that they receive uh it, it just became bigger than, than than any uh franchise that you can imagine and because of that i i, I think uh i think jerry wanted to have his piece of the pie so to speak and say look i'm i'm the one who who brought phil jackson in and gave him a chance in the nba uh you know i i i'm the guy that uh uh Saw Scotty Pippen out of Central Arkansas and, and, and realized that he had special talent to, to play in the NBA, not only play in the NBA, but to become an eventual Hall of Famer. Uh, all of these uh, moves that he was so proud of, uh, I, I think he felt slighted to, or at least overlooked uh, when it came to handing out the uh, congratulatory cigars. Fred Mitchell with me, Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app as we talk about the Last Dance documentary. Fred was um, primarily featured his column uh, from February of 1998 uh, regarding Jerry Krause warning Jordan. And by the way, speaking of that column, <laughs> Fred, I mean, I, there's no way that Michael was coming back if Phil was on the outs. It just, I, it's, it, I mean, yeah. like, what, what was he thinking? Did he really believe? That he could convince Michael and that, and maybe, maybe not Pippen, but definitely Michael to stay and Jackson leave when Michael already said on the record. And if, if I'm, was that uh, Brian Burrell? 
I believe that's who Michael was talking to in the, in the documentary, right? The St. Louis Dispatch writer. It could, could have it could have been. Uh, yeah, and yeah, Michael said it. it, it was, yeah, it was uh, pretty incredulous. I, you know, after seeing that column, uh, you know, that's a long time ago, and it, after rereading it, it, you know, brought back memories of of that conversation. Uh, as I tried to sort of paint a picture with the words. He was he was sick and coughing, and, and uh, you could just tell that he was hurting physically mm-hmm. uh, at the time that I made that call to him, and yet, uh, you know, his true feelings I, I think came forward, uh, and I, I think he did not want to be blamed for uh, pushing Michael away and, and perhaps retiring, uh, and yet. As you said, he lined he lined up all the all the pins to make it inevitable that uh, that Michael was not going to return to the Bulls. So uh, it's not a surprise. It was uh, you know that what happened actually happened. But to to hear the mindset and the thinking uh, of of him at that time was especially in, in retrospect. It's like wow, uh, this was. Not a smart move, and, and you know, I think a lot of Bulls fans said, you know, as uh, great as it was to have those six championships, uh, let's let's stay greedy and let's let things play out on the on the court uh, as far as uh, making the determination of breaking the team up. But you know, here they are winning, you know, a sixth title, and uh, management and Krauss in particular is saying, "Okay, that's enough. We've we've got ours. We're going to start to rebuild uh, ahead of time." And now, uh, given the benefit of time, we see how that worked out. Not not so well. I, I covered the Bulls uh, the entire 1999 season mm-hmm. as a oh, beat writer, oh, and uh, I saw I saw how how that went with Tim Floyd and the, and. The, Guys who came in and out, uh, it, it was not a not a pretty picture, uh, basically, uh, especially compared to what we had seen earlier with the Jordan years. You know, this will not be part of the documentary, but I can put together two um, two lines of thought, Fred, regarding how the Bulls do business back, how they did business back then, and how they do business now. Here's mm-hmm. the two. Tell me, follow me on this. Okay. In this documentary already, we have seen how um, how Jerry Krause was already looking at Phil Jackson to be the head coach while Doug was in the position. And that was the mm-hmm. first time I ever heard on the record Doug Collins say that I felt like a year and a half into my tenure that I was going to be replaced. I'd never right. heard him say that before because mm-hmm. <clears throat> there were other circumstances with that, which we will not get into. But I, I will say that uh, with Collins and Jackson – Colin said, I knew he was going to be replaced. He was replaced. And it was just like the worst kept secret. I think even you were, were writing about this. If I remember the tribute back yeah. in the day, you were saying that there's speculation with Jackson being an assistant. Um, mm-hmm. So, so you get that Collins to Jackson, Jackson to Floyd, a year mm-hmm. that, that same year that we're covering here with the last dance, Tim mm-hmm. Floyd's name was always, always on the surface, always bubbling yeah. to the surface. I said, what is, who is this Tim Floyd? Why is Tim Floyd even a factor while the Bulls are trying to win this championship? And then from Thibodeau to Hoiberg, 
The same mm-hmm. thing where Thibodeau in his last year, we kept hearing about Hoiberg and the connection there with mm-hmm. Gar Foreman. Amazing yeah. how all of this is connected, where we go all the way back to the Collins-Jackson uh, administration to this where we are right now. Uh, mm-hmm. Nothing really changes much. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think it, you know, it shows you much the same as in, in, in the business world uh, how significant uh, relationships are. So when you're talking about management in, in pro sports or in, in any business, you're talking about people who feel comfortable, right, with, with people that they work with or have working for them. And this seemed to be a, a guiding light for uh, Jerry Krause that, uh, okay, I feel comfortable, comfortable with Tim Ploy, so we're going to make it work with him. Or I feel comfortable with Fred Hoiberg. And obviously, there are more factors in play than just a sort of a comfort level. And we've seen in, in all the pro sports, especially, where you have uh, teams and organizations with disparate personalities and guys who don't get along necessarily. Not everybody on the team gets along with everybody, and yet they can win. You know, whether you're talking about the you know the Yankees. Billy Martin and Steinbrenner and uh, any other uh, instances of organizations like that that bring in the best talent and the best coaches uh, and, and, and get the, the winning results, which does not necessarily mean everybody gets along. So it, it seemed to me that Jerry Krause was, was looking for that extra bit of comfort to go along with the with the winning that he had experienced in the 90s. Because as we can see, he was not really a, a very comfortable. He was not welcomed and accepted by, by the players, not respected by them. And uh, that, that, I'm sure, deeply bothered him. It's Under the Hood. Follow us on the gram at IGJHood and at ESPN underscore Chicago. This is Chicago's home for sports, ESPN 1000. Fred Mitchell, former Tribune columnist, author of 12 great books, with me, Jonathan Hood, on ESPN 1000 and the brand-new ESPN Chicago app. Fred, you've known Michael Jordan for a long time, and, and so we see him there very comfortable uh, sitting in a chair with his uh, glass of cognac and a, and a nice cigar just spinning yarns and telling stories about uh, his time with the Bulls. How does Michael Jordan come off to you in this documentary with his storytelling? Well, you know, uh, the thing about a documentary like this is that, uh, you know, they have the the footage and and the interviews with other people to either add to the story, confirm the story, or to show a a conflict. So, you know, he, he comes off pretty... Well, everybody knows about his uh, extraordinary athletic ability, and it's it's, it's really uh, a good education for a younger generation uh, who were not able to see him play and see him dominate against some of the Hall of Fame competition that he faced. Uh, so, in that sense, it's great. Uh, you know, we we see his ultra competitiveness. And uh, even to this day, you know, as he relives moments from uh, a quarter of a century ago, uh, you can 
sense how intense he is and how he's maintained the, the feelings that he has, uh, the hatred toward the Detroit Pistons and Isaiah Thomas and Bill Lambier and those guys uh, is still very evident and probably uh, will never will never go away. Uh, is there something, Fred, that you've seen so far in the documentary that you did not know? Because I have a few things that I was not aware of. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I, I wasn't uh, aware of the extent of the uh, disagreement, I, I guess you'd call it, between Krauss and and, uh, and Jordan and some of the other players. And the same with uh, Scottie Pippen and, and Krauss. Uh, and that was it. Was great to see the practice, some footage from practice sessions, where uh, Michael is, is yelling at teammates like Tony Kukoc and and others, uh, because as you know, you know as as uh, sports writers, uh, you know once practice starts, uh, you know we're shuttled off to a private room and not able to watch the teams uh, actually practice. Mm-hmm. So that uh, that also was uh, was informative to me, uh, yeah. And I'm sure there were a few, few other things uh, as well, uh, especially I think the you know the relationships between one player and the other. Uh, seeing Scott how Scotty Pippen was was treated as a rookie and, and literally bullied uh, by by some of the uh, <laughs> Charles Oakley was yes. pushing him around uh, in the locker room, uh, obviously. We're not privy to, to that sort of thing either. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, uh, you know that's the indicator to me that uh, a documentary is worthwhile. Is that you come away with it as a viewer and say, oh wow, I I followed that team and, and I thought I knew everything about it, but here's a few things that I that I learned about it. So that that's what makes this documentary special, and I'm sure this is what they've tried to do and. Uh, because of that, I'm, I'm looking forward to the to the next uh, several sessions of it. A couple of things I did not know, Fred. I didn't. First of all, I don't know where they found the Phil Jackson Mexico footage of him in that yeah, short oh, sleeve yeah. shirt. That was the, great, wasn't it? <laughs> it's like I didn't know, <laughs> know where they got that footage from, but that was just amazing. Mm-hmm. And I had never seen Phil so demonstrative. That's also was mm-hmm. shocking to me because. He's yeah. usually on the sidelines, you know, with his, his um, legs crossed, but he was just on the court yelling at the officials. I hadn't seen that before. Um, right. And, and yeah. then the whole Stan Albeck um, minutes limit thing on Jordan in the early days of the Bulls. You saw this, right? The Bulls take on Indiana, and Kraus had a minutes limit on Jordan yeah. coming off the injury. And I said, right. my, my God, this is Joe Kim Noah and Vinny Del Negro all over again. Yeah. Is yeah. this it's like is this and that's and that I mentioned this as a commentary on the show too, like God, I mean, Pax saw this as a player where Paxson mm-hmm. hit the key shot against the Pacers, um and you know, Jordan had was only only play fourteen minutes because of the injury and he right. wanted to come back in there because he was red hot fourth quarter, yeah. knocking it down and mm-hmm. it was, you know, like no more than 30 seconds left, and Jordan wanted to come back in the, in the game. And Albeck says, I can't put you back in the game. If I put and you I'll back in the fired. game, yeah. Krauss is going to is gonna fire me on the spot. Right. And, and, which, right. which also, fast forward to <laughs> the same stopwatch from Paxson on yeah. Vinny Del Negro because Joe Kim Noah had plantar, uh, plantar fasciitis, 
and says, you can't play him in any more than what was it, 15, 16 minutes, and Vinny kept him on the floor. Then there's the mm-hmm. the tie pulling incident between Paxson and Vinny. It just yeah. it's amazing yeah. that the past yeah. how it connects to the present. It's crazy. Right. right. Yeah. It 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 is, isn't it? And uh, uh, you wonder if if Paxson was was even mindful uh, of the connection between those two incidents. Uh, you know, as a, when he was a player versus when he be, became the, uh, the you know the guy in charge. So. Uh, yeah, that was that was a very impactful thing, and in my interview that uh, with Krauss, it was it was shown on on uh, the documentary. Uh, uh, Krauss acknowledges that he and, and Michael uh, had you know had a, had a rough go of it, as he put it. I think uh, ever since that second year when when he did have that time limit on him, and he he also uh, Krauss brought up in, in the interview with me. Uh, that he told uh, he made a mistake by telling Jordan at one point, you know, you work here, <laughs> you know, as if he was uh, a lowly employee. And uh, and Krauss said, uh, well, you know, maybe I used the wrong words. <laughs> uh, you, know, you know, it's like, well, you think, you know, <laughs> uh, that was, uh, you know, an, an example of why there was continued tension between between the two of them. And uh, I can't imagine if if Krause ever did have a one-on-one with Jordan toward the end of that '98 season, and maybe we'll find out. Uh, and and said, you know, maybe you, you can stay here, but you'd have to take a, a huge cut in pay or something like that. I I, I can't imagine uh, what the, what that might have come over really like. Well, Fred, I'm glad you spent some time. I'm enjoying the documentary learning as I watch. And uh, we'll, uh, more than likely, we'll, maybe we'll see you pop up again in a media scrum. We'll see you some, some more stuff out of this documentary from <laughs> you. You never know. You never know. It's, it's great been, to see. It was, long, it was a long time ago, and yet uh, it, it, it's bringing it back to as if it were yesterday. So it's fascinating to, to watch, and, I, and I'm glad, that, especially during this time of isolation for, for everybody to – to have something to look forward in terms of sports to watch. So look forward to it. Fred, thanks so much, as always, for coming on the show. You bet. Thank you, Donovan. You take Fred Mitchell from the, the longtime uh, columnist for the Chicago Tribune. With me, Jonathan Hoods, we talked about the last dance right here on ESPN 1000. This is Under the Hood on ESPN 1000. Follow at TweetJHood on Twitter. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000. Chicago's home for sports. Uh, Long-time scribe from the Chicago Tribune and author of 11, 12 different great books with us here on ESPN 1000. Had a really interesting show tonight with a lot of different perspectives, including mine and yours. Thanks so much for checking in. I um, <laughs> this last dance thing. Let me ask you just real quickly, Tyler, because we haven't heard your voice on the show, and we have not heard your thoughts about uh, about the last dance. Learn anything? Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I had no idea about the the Rodman Vegas trip. I'd never heard about that before, so that was a, a real eye opener. And just the fact that that could not, or a lot of the stuff that you're seeing even in this documentary could not happen. I mean, you couldn't have a, a Jerry Krause run a team the way that he did in this day and age. It, it just couldn't happen. You sure? I don't think so. You, you, I mean, there's some bad GMs in this league. There's some bad GMs, but there aren't bad GMs that say no to 
great coaches, great players, and stuff like that. It's insane, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when you think about it, it is insane. Um, I, I just I've really enjoyed the documentary because it's a refresher in a lot of ways. Um, Charles Barkley feels like uh, this is not on Jerry Krause. All of this, this is on Jerry Reinsdorf. It's been. I don't think there's anything shocking in there, to be honest with you. Well, I think, I think that we looked at Jerry, Jerry Krause was the villain, and then it, no, he wasn't. No, he wasn't. No, no, no. He was portrayed as the villain because you know at the end because he took it apart. He didn't take that apart. Anybody think that's a fool? That thing was all orchestrated by Jerry Ransdorf. The notion that that little man broke up the Bulls is <laughs> asinine and absurd. Hey, listen, John, if you go back and look at the and, and use common sense, just use plain common sense, Jerry Ransdorf broke up the Bulls because he didn't want to pay anybody. You think about this. He let Horace Grant grow because he became a free agent, didn't want to pay him. They probably won't talk about that in the documentary. That's why he left and went to Orlando. He only paid Michael the last two years. Yeah. When he had Michael at a bargain, he was happy. So he didn't want to pay Michael. He paid him those last two years. And he had Scotty under a great deal. That's the reason he broke up the Bulls, strictly because of money. But to try to make Jerry Krause to be the bad guy, I thought that was very disingenuous by Jerry Ryan's daughter. I agree. After I watched that documentary, those first two episodes, I came in on Monday and I said, why is it that Jerry Reinsdorf, the owner, has no blood on his hands in this? Well, because he's a, that's the way he is. He's the solid assassin. He's my man from that movie, The Professional. You come in and kill you, you don't even know you're dead until it's over. Barkley with Dan Patrick of The Dan Patrick Show. Good stuff there. All right, we thank you for listening and being part of the program here on ESPN 1000. Our thanks to Tyler and Sean on the other side of the glass. Don't forget to follow along on Twitter, twitter.com, tweetjhood. Always podcast cranking out for you on Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood.